Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. I don't know if my memories muddled it, but I swear he like looked at me as he was saying it and... Again, like I, I was still quite shy at this point, um, also very much a goody-goody and would never speak back to a teacher, but I lost it. And it was the, the first time I yelled at a teacher. Was got, I got quite emotional um, and started crying and I was like, because he, he made a joke about Aboriginal people not having any jobs and just being on the dole. And I said, I'll have you know. My uncle is an engineer, my auntie is a nurse, my father's a police officer, and my grandmother worked as a social worker. How dare you say that? Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we have the ever impressive Marley Silver. Marley is a Camilla Roy Dungutty woman and the founder of Titters for Titters, a movement that shines a light on the stories of Indigenous women around Australia. On top of running Titters for Titters, Marley is a national youth advisor for the Red Cross, is writing a book and spends much of her time speaking across the country to change the conversation around the Indigenous experience. Oh, and did we mention Marley? Marley is only 24. In this chat, we talk about everything from tokenism to channeling anger into activism and why, in her early 20s, Marley struggles to balance a life outside of her work. Here's Marley. Marley, welcome to Shameless in Conversations. Thank you so much for making the time for us. Oh, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. We start every episode in the same way, which is to ask, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you would recommend? I am reading, um, I'm a bit terrible in having time to like read or or do things for leisure, but I am reading uh, Stephen King's memoir on writing and anyone who is a writer or kind of creative in any way, it's just... I don't know, I feel like I'm holding a mirror up to me. There's like lots of little quirks. He's so hilarious. And to be honest, like I'm I'm not a fiction reader at all, so I've never read a Stephen King book. But just the way he talks about being a writer and, I don't know, the self-deprecating stories are so beautiful. It's all very meta, writing about writing. I know, right? And he's very honest about it as well. He's like, I'm not going to act like I'm the expert on writing, but I'll just tell you, he kind of just 
shows lessons through anecdotes and yeah, mm. love that. You have recently announced that you're writing a book. Is that why you're reading about writing? Oh God. No, actually the Daily Talk Show guys gave me the book. That's well, why I started that, writing it. That's Okay. I was just thinking as you're saying that, I'm like, someone gave me that book and I've never read it. And it was Josh from the Daily Talk yeah. Show. It's one of their favorite books. That's why they gave it to me. I reckon it's in the back of my car. It would be. I yeah. think, sorry, Josh, if you're listening and he will be. Josh, I'm so sorry. All right, I'll start reading that too. And you recommend it? Yes, big time. Wow. What about podcasts and like things to watch? Do you, I mean, you said you don't have a heap of time to read. I imagine that extends to watching things too. Yeah. And, and that's why podcasts are the best. <laughs> I mean, obviously we're in a biased <laughs> room about that, but it's also because I can do other things while I'm listening. I'm a religious listener to The Daily um, by the New York Times and I love 7am as well. Like I'm a nerd, like love news, daily news ones and I mean, I just finished Snowball as well, which was amazing. And I did it in two days, like couldn't stop. Did you finish Snowball, Zara? I know I got you started on I Snowball. I actually did really enjoy the first three episodes. Oh, I think God. everybody said episode four is when it gets wild and I just forgot to listen to it. Oh, I'll check back in. That's okay. That's annoying. I'm You're such a failure. <laughs> I got really nervous when we started talking about that because I knew this was going to come back to me. It's a great podcast for those who haven't listened. Marley, our second question for every In Conversation guest is what was your childhood like? Well, uh, so I grew up in a part of Sydney called the Sutherland Shire. Um, you may have seen a quite horrendous reality show called oh my God, the, the Shire. Shire. Yes. What a show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we're kind of uh, known for that and the Cronulla Riot. So it's all very, very nice things when you think about the Shire. And growing up there in a mixed household where my dad is Aboriginal and my mum is white, uh, it's kind of a unique experience because for the most part, the people around you are Anglo-Saxon, Christian, middle-class people. And that's not what we were. So as a kid, I was, I was really shy. And because of that, my mum chucked me into drama classes when I was like four. Uh, and so I've always felt more comfortable on a stage than having conversations face to face, which is a weird thing. But I, yeah, I, I love being on stage and love talking and that sort of stuff and I guess I I cruised through you know primary school doing pretty well nothing super crazy and then I got to high school and and things changed pretty quickly because I had the fact that I was different to the peers around me for being an Aboriginal person thrown in my face within four weeks of year seven when my dad picked me up from school one day in his pajamas because he is a shift worker (laughs) and um had gotten out of the car to get me because it started raining, which in hindsight was very, very sweet of him. But Mm. at the time was like the worst thing he could have done for my popularity. Uh, And the next day when I expected peers to make jokes of the fact that he was in his pajamas, instead they asked me why he was black. Mm. And never in my life had I heard someone be called a colour. And off the back of that, after telling my peers that, oh, he's Aboriginal, I'm Aboriginal, that's why I guess he's darker than my mum, you know, still not really understanding why they'd said black. It was like I was outed to my school and I was the only Aboriginal student there until my younger sister came a year later. And I quickly became the token Aboriginal student and not just for my friends, but also for the teachers, which is probably that that was harder was the teachers because I guess you, you look at authority figures like teachers and 
think that they're supposed to protect you from a lot of things, but they exposed me to a lot of things. Um, I got called out in class to make comments on Aboriginal history when I was just another student trying to learn about it too. Uh, in art class, when we were studying Aboriginal art, for some reason an art teacher would ha- make the point of pointing me out and going, now if we were to recreate this dot painting, only you could call it Aboriginal art, Marley. Things like that, very strange. And then in Year 10, my kooky science teacher who used to tell everyone he'd been abducted by aliens managed i know (laughs) this is the kind of science teacher we want isn't it yeah um managed to weave in an explicitly racist joke in class about aboriginal people wow and like i don't know if my memories muddled it but i swear he like looked at me as he was saying it and again like i i was still quite shy at this point um also very much a goody goody and would never speak back to a teacher, but I lost it. Um, and it was the, the first time I yelled at a teacher and I got up and walked out of class. What did you say, Marley? I was got, I got quite emotional um, and started crying. And I was like, because he, he made a joke about Aboriginal people not having any jobs and just being on the dole. Um, and I said, I'll have you know. My uncle is an engineer, my auntie is a nurse, my father's a police officer and my grandmother worked as a social worker. How dare you say that sort of thing. But I think it was far less articulate and me more like, how dare you, like that. And then kind of stormed out and I remember ringing my mum hysterical, which I think was really hard for her but even harder for my dad when I told him. And he's like so non-confrontational, like, even though he's a police officer, that seems like an oxymoron. <laughs> but um, he like rang the principal and he was like, what are you going to do about it? And then I never got so much as an apology. So I was going to ask how the school responded yeah. to not just the joke, but your response to it too. Yeah, it was swept under the rug. And 12 months later, I had peers write racist graffiti about me on school property. And the same thing happened. They wrote Marley Silver Sniffs Petrol uh, on a a tape you know those old silver tables mm, um in yeah. schoolyards yeah they did the same thing and then it was me rocking up to the deputy principal's office every day for a week being like what are you going to do what are you going to do and it was oh they've been told to wash the table and that's it no apology again um and i lost those experiences and sort of the way that my peers reacted to anything, you know, I was in year 12 when the Adam Goods saga mm. happened and that was very revealing um, for me and also in the sense that I could kind of tell how conversations laid out in uh, my friends' households in comparison to mine very, very differently. So by the time I left school, I was desperate to get out of there and didn't trust anyone. Marley, can you explain to anyone who is white listening what it feels like to have a racial slur or casually racist comment made about your family or you? Yeah. What emotion is that? It's hard to articulate because it is quite a visceral reaction that your body has to something like that. I wrote a poem about it once and I called it like uh, prodding fingers in an open wound. And I... I think that it's your biggest vulnerability went from the first time that you experience it. The first time that someone looks at you a funny way because, I, I mean, I wear my flag all the time and people 
react and or people make an offhanded comment around you when they don't realise you're Aboriginal, especially if you look like how I do, which is not the Tourism Australia version of an Aboriginal person. It is completely uh, disheartening um, and kind of it, – it is really hard to articulate, I guess. I, I usually have more than enough words for things, but uh, racism, because it's making a comment on something that – is is who you are you can't, you can't change your culture you can't change what makes you tick and what your identity is so they're telling you no matter kind of the gravity of what it is that they actually say it's um heart heartbreaking you never forget it I, I remember every single person who's ever made a, a comment and um yeah you, you have to have pretty thick skin on the one hand, you have uh, students who are throwing casually racist comments at you. You have teachers that don't protect you. And then on the other, I heard you speak in other interviews about feeling like you're wheeled out for like publicity almost for the school in front of the Department of Education saying like, this is what a model Aboriginal student looks like. Did you feel resentful about that at the time or did that come with hindsight? I think I started off being like, oh, this is hectic. Like, oh, the teachers want me to go and, and talk to this auntie. I got sent out on all these leadership camps where I made some of my best mates and I actually felt more at home there than I did in my regular school environment. So I was really thankful for that sort of stuff. It was actually as probably those last two instances happened with the teacher in class and then the graffiti that I started going, hang on, I'm only allowed to be black when it suits you. Uh, when I turn around and tell you that, I've been racially vilified and this upsets me and I'd made suggestion of maybe we could do a an educational assembly and around particularly around why we do acknowledgement to country because I was the oldest aboriginal student in the school out of two um mm-hmm. and that meant that I would always do the acknowledgements at important assemblies and so many people would ask me oh why do we even have to listen to that all the time why do we have to do it up before every single assembly and I remember saying to the deputy principal after this graffiti thing had happened I think this is an opportunity for us to educate peers like educate people so I'm happy to stand there I'm happy to get dad up like let's just talk about it but that was shut down quite quickly and then we had a multicultural day you know, and uh, I think it was be- just such a testament to the fact that I was allowed to be Aboriginal when it suited the school and when I wanted to wear my blackness in the way that suited me, there was see you later. I wanted to ask you about Cronulla and growing up in Cronulla in the wake of all of those rights. How did that play into any of this? Did it at the time? Was that on your mind, the fact that this was an area that wasn't very inclusive, that wasn't very progressive? Was that ever on your mind? So when the Cronulla riots happened, one of my oldest cousins was in high school and she's Lebanese-Australian on my mum's side and she was getting text messages from both sides of the thing, like... Google the Cronulla riots if you want to see the details of it. But essentially there was, it was racially based. On one side was a, a group of Middle Eastern Australian men. On the other side was the um, white bogans of Cronulla. Whatever. It was a terrible, terrible thing. Um, and I, So my rem- memory of that was of my cousin getting these text messages and it being – I think I compartmentalised it around the fact that, oh, wow, the the Shire is really racist against Middle Eastern people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think that we fell into that as well. And it wasn't until I started facing a lot of this stuff. And I think my parents did a good job of protecting us from a lot of it. Uh, But as it started to come out, mum and dad tell me now that they had been so hopeful that 
my sister and I wouldn't have to go through what my dad did. And it breaks their heart that to a certain extent that we did. Uh, so they, they told us some things later on as means of kind of explaining how dad got through it and that sort of stuff. But probably one of the moments when I realised that uh, what the Cronulla riots actually did was reveal exactly who we are as a community in the Sutherland Shire uh, was when my mum told me that a at a barbecue between school parents when I was in primary school that my parents weren't at but one of mum's friends was. There had recently been uh, car break-ins in our suburb and one of the people at the table made the joke that it was my dad doing it um, because he is Aboriginal, which is pretty horrific. And so, yeah, mum's friend who'd been at the dinner like, came and told us straight away because she was so horrified of what had happened and everyone kind of laughed about it and in, in agreement. And, like, again, this is my dad who's a police officer. He's also a former rugby league player and had quite a high profile. And as soon as he stopped playing and then ended up just being the – the black fella up the road, it was okay to racially vilify him as well. I find that really interesting in that we have a lot of time for Aboriginal athletes and as long as they're performing well on the field, they're allowed to be Aboriginal. But as soon as they kind of step outside the box of being a supplicant or or acquiescing with what we all want, they are almost a nuisance. Did your dad, do you feel like, experience that? second he stepped out of that professional rugby world, he lost some of that value to society? Yeah, I think people remind you pretty quickly that without your sporting talent, um, you're still just just a black fella. I, I don't know if it was so explicit, but like a lot of people dropped off and, and didn't want anything to do with him once he retired. And yeah, that, that example of those parents when I was at school is a pretty, pretty strong one of, of the attitude. It's probably only been within the last five years that he's kind of opened up a lot more around some of the stuff that he copped even on the field, you know, other players calling him black somethings. And, yeah, I I think that it might have even been different if the accessibility to footballers, you know, back in the 90s was the same as what it is now with social media and that sort of stuff. But, yeah, Dad was pretty quiet too. Like, he and I are basically the same person. Just (laughs) I think he kept it quiet about a lot of things and with too many knocks to the head, he probably doesn't remember a lot of it as well, but yeah. Did you talk a lot about the Adam Goods yeah. racism saga? Yeah, that was – I kind of see that moment in 2013 as a really big defining time in my life. Like there's been a few of those, the one in Year 7 when why is your dad black and then when the Adam Goods stuff happened because it was just that big juxtaposition moment where in my household we're celebrating Adam and we're so proud of him and love him. Like I, I'm not an AFL supporter at all, but we know, all knew who Adam Goods and Michael O'Loughlin were because mm. they're Aboriginal and they play for the Swans and they're, they're deadly. And then literally again, it's funny because I always tell these stories of like what happened in my house and then I'd go to school the next day and it'd be completely different. And I realised that I, I lived in a bubble. So I got to school and everyone's like, oh, he needs to get over it. And I was heartbroken because... I think that subconsciously Adam was a, you know, he represented who my dad is, you know, as an Aboriginal sports person who is speaking out, like my da- where my dad didn't get to. So, yeah, I was very emotionally invested in that. And then I met Adam last year 
and like fangirled really <laughs> hard. And so I'm, I had a short story published in Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, which is a novel edited by Anita Heiss. And Adam has a story in there as well. So I went up to him and I was like, Hi, Adam. Uh, my name's Marley. We're in the same book. We're <laughs> in the same book. Uh, and he was so, so beautiful and like had all the time in the world for me. And I was like, you, you know, my, my dreams have become a reality. You're exactly what I expected. <laughs> it's interesting to me, I think, when you put a lot of people in the scenarios that you were in, you have kind of one of two choices. You either get louder and get more political or you push your feelings and your beliefs down and you try as hard as you can to quote unquote fit in and Mm. not try to rock the boat, which I think is probably the easier thing to do in a country Mm. that isn't very understanding or Mm -hmm. progressive when it comes to Indigenous issues. Why did you choose to take the political loud route and how old were you when you did? I was kind of forced to face that at 12, 13. Obviously, it's a journey to get to the position that I'm in now and to be confident enough to talk about everything to do with being an Aboriginal person, including the politics of it. I think to a certain extent, simply being born Aboriginal, you're politicised. But I made the decision to be quite outright in in how I talk about those things and wear my heart and my culture on my sleeve because actually my mum said this to me the other day, you've never liked being told what to do, Marley, ever, Mm -hmm. and you've always rebelled against it. And as soon as someone tells you you can't do something, you have to go out of your way to prove that you can. And I was like, okay, true. And I think because of the stories of my family and my immediate reaction to realising that my culture made me different was to go to dad and be like, tell me everything that you, you know about our family so when people ask me things, they have the right answers. And he started telling me the stories of my grandmother and she was one of 12 and they, you know, all my aunties and uncles have these incredible stories of overcoming periods of time when they weren't counted as citizens. And, you know, my nan got spat on at school every day. She was the only Aboriginal student there and ended up being uh, the first Aboriginal woman to get a Bachelor of Social Work from the University of Sydney. And my great-grandmother, who raised all of these kids in a little more than a tin humpy on a dried-up riverbed in Moree, New South Wales. So when you hear stuff like that and you know how much the people who've come before you have fought in quite literally with blood, sweat and tears, you know that the little – well, the things that you're facing seem far smaller. And I found it empowered me and I was driven a lot in the early days by anger I was very, very angry and I constantly bit people's head off. But later on, I was able to, you know, post-adolescence, I was able to take a lot of... Post-hormonal rage. (laughs) (laughs) I was able to kind of reduce that into measured, more direct and purposeful discussion around this sorts of stuff. It almost sounds like simmering it down to something more potent. Yeah, yeah. And and I realised, Dad always used to say to me, you've got to pick your battles and you've got to know who's worth having those discussions with because there's some people who are too far gone. The Pauline Hansons of the world aren't going to listen. So you've got to figure out which ones they are and which ones are worth your time. We're going to get to Pauline Hanson in just a second. <laughs> I did write a question down about that, but... Let's fast forward to now. You're 24 now. I am. On your birthday on the Titters for Titters Instagram page, you shared a quote that says, I want to live a brave life over a good life. What's behind that? What do you mean by that? I think that it is reflective of the fact that I have accepted that there's going to be people who will never like me. There's going to be people who will never buy into 
what I'm trying to do, but that doesn't bother me because I know what I'm doing is important and no one can stop me whether they think I'm I'm good or whatever that even means or not. I'm always going to keep fighting. I'm always going to be dedicated to furthering the progress of my people and you you can think what you want and there's even people in my own community who who won't like what I do because I, I guess sometimes people don't like it when they didn't come up with the idea but but that's all right because I, I'm still gonna do it and no one can stop me. Do you think you actually can care about being liked if you want to be an activist of some kind? No no way I mean if you care about that your energy will just be depleted you'll you'll be turned off from from doing anything I stupidly I did a a video for uh, Channel 9 with Brooke Boney uh, around Reconciliation Week and when they released it on the Today Show Facebook page, fatal error. Did I read the comments? Yeah, I did read the comments, oh didn't my, I? Yeah, it is a cesspit of just ignorance. And it's, the, it's the one and only time I did it and I learned my lesson very, very quickly. You know what it is? It's this hard balance now where I look at that stuff and like I could be – like it's water off a duck's back, whatever. It's just these people behind troll profiles doing whatever. Probably Nokia phones. Back <laughs> With the Southern Cross tattoos and all that <laughs> kind of crap. But I also don't want to lose – I don't want to become desensitized to it because I think that mm. if you just look at it and you feel nothing, um, the bit of the spark goes as well. So it's the balance of being able to feel feel the hurt a little bit to a certain extent and this is because I'm at a point where I'm you know at a place where I'm really strong and I have great support networks and have that resilience there that I can let a little bit of of the pain in but turn it into fuel and turn it into energy to keep doing stuff rather than just mulling on it and feeling quite depressed about that sort of stuff. Coming up after the break, what drove Marley to start Titters for Titters? But first, a word from our sponsor. Talk to us about Pauline Hansen. Oh, God. So, there, of course, there's that school of thought that you just touched on that you kind of need to open yourself up a little bit to the other side to actually be informed as to where the country sits on mm. things and what the average Australian actually thinks. What do you think about shows like Sunrise or Today going to people like Pauline Hansen as the authoriteurs on... Aboriginal issues, like should we climb Uluru, for example? Yeah, it's a farce. It's completely absurd and reflective of the leadership in those media institutions. Um, We have a monopoly in our media of, you know, just a couple of white guys who have very overtly uh, racist perspectives around things and then yeah I feel particularly disheartened when I see a Pauline Hanson on the Today Show when on the same panel there's an incredible young Aboriginal woman in Brooke Boney there I can't imagine how difficult that is because she's so fantastic at her job and I know that she would probably be avoiding a lot being pulled into a lot of these discussions because she's an entertainment reporter and you should treat her as such but how you can sit there and see that your workplace is valuing the voice of someone as repugnant as Pauline Hanson, that must be shocking. Why do you think they continue to do it? 
Because they love the shock value and they love that she causes a discussion and people will talk about it online and people will take the piss out of her and some will champion what she has to say. I mean, we're so clickbaity. Like, that's Mm. what we want. We want something, especially because most people absorb their news, not from TV, but from their phones. They need a video that'll go viral. And Pauline is such a moron that she will say something that will go viral. Mm. And that's... That's what, why it is more than anything, I think. We like to reduce things though, don't we? Mm. Like take the nuance and layers out of it completely. And you're so right. Like mm. the fact that we consume all of our news on our phones kind of does that. Moving away from Pauline for a second to something on a little bit more positive and <laughs> more important. You started an Instagram page called Titters for Titters. Can you tell us why you started it and what your seed of intention was when you started it? Yeah. Uh, so 2018, the NADOC theme. So NADOC is our... Uh, kind of penultimate week of celebration for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I call it the Black Christmas in July because that's when it is. <laughs> <laughs> so the lead up to that week and also across the in- entire year, there's a theme that kind of guides a lot of the discussion we have in our community. And last year's theme was Because of Her We Can. And what that saw was this incredible 12 months. And I've had quite a few people say to me it was their favourite NAIDOC in their lifetime where we were focused on our women. We were focused on our aunties and our grandmothers and our female leaders from the past who were on the front lines of the civil rights movement and came home to feed five kids and, and did that. You know, it's just this incredible inherent ability to care and to push forward for us as a people. It was amazing. And at the same time, I was doing my honours research at uni and it was focused on the representation of Aboriginal women in film and television. So my entire 2018 was just focused on our women, focused on writing about them, watching films where they're, you know, represented in a really beautiful way. And then also when it's, they're not given justice. And I got towards the end of that and thought, oh my gosh, we've got like two months before we get to 2019 and we have a new theme and people are going to stop talking about our women and there's so many stories that haven't been told and there's everyday women who are doing something all the time. I need to do something about it. And I've worked for Aboriginal organisations exclusively most of my life. I've worked in the non-profit sector and through one role in particular, I had a, a pretty awesome opportunity to do a summer business course at the uh, Stanford University in California and in that I'd never been kind of business minded or anything but it's planted a seed of of being able to do something and being able to build something of my own that could have impact. So I kind of woke up one day and across the breakfast table to my sister said I've got this idea I'm going to start an Instagram page and we're going to champion Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and it's going to be amazing. And she kind of rolled her eyes and looked at me like I was crazy because I kind of have big ideas all the time. It's just not that often that I kind of go through with them. So I started the page and the name, so Tito is a slang word for sister. So it really is sisters for sisters. Uh, that's the, the name. And I, that's what came to me first. And then I just started it and my sister's an artist so I was like can I take some pictures of your artwork and we'll use that to make a logo and it's going to look all flash and everything and within a week we had a thousand followers and we quickly surpassed my own followers very quickly and I was like gee this is all right this people are excited about this and the right people were getting behind us you know people 
I guess, Aboriginal influences that we, we have now, which is really cool, started following us very early on. And the women who were following, like the everyday women who were following us, were so open and raw with us and they just were so hungry to share their stories. And that's really the inherent reason that we were successful is because these women were coming to us with open arms being like, hey, this is what I've been through and I want to share it because I know that other people have been through it and there's something they could learn from it. So yeah, less than 12 months later, we're like over 17,000 followers uh, with a podcast with, you know, we're about to be incorporated as a social enterprise, which is amazing. And I'm going to be an official businesswoman. That's why I'm wearing a blazer today. (laughs) And I guess the the initial intention was just to have a space online because social media can be a really toxic place, specifically for, for young women to look at and see themselves and not have it be something focused on body image or focused on, I don't know, having this beautiful, constructed, flawless life and instead be inspired and know their worth. So I think that's what we've done. I think you've definitely done that. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about growth because I heard you talking about this on another podcast about the growth of Titters for Titters Mm. and how it can be amazing, I imagine, to have this groundswell of support and voices and to carve your own space online. Mm. But with that and with growth, I imagine comes perhaps a tiny bit of fear that you are starting to attract a different kind of person too, a person who may not understand your mission or what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it was quite overwhelming. You kind of go, oh my gosh, like maybe I'm going to second guess myself when I write particular things and put it out there because there's so many people who can see this and it's going to get attention sometimes from people who aren't on our side. We've been really, really lucky with the small amount of kind of racist trolls. Like it really has not been a problem, which in saying this, I want to be like knock on wood because (laughs) I don't know why. I don't know if it's because, I mean, there's definitely been some posts that I've done that are inherently political and are divisive for for some people who, who don't agree with it, which is fine. And I... My attitude is I encourage the discussion in the comments. There's some, been some things that within our own community people don't agree on and that's fine. I think that's healthy and I think we come out with better solutions when we have that. So I don't know if it's because that's the attitude that comes through, but we're not, we're not getting it yet, which is, is awesome. And I think that because of our community, the strength of our community that we've built as in Titters for Titters, they would quickly tear that person down before I would need to. So, yeah, which is a a great privilege. We obviously have a lot of people that will listen to this podcast as well and who might not have come across your work before. Mm. And I wonder if you can speak to how we, in your opinion, can make social media a safer space for women of colour to share their thoughts and share their stories and share their opinions without white people trying to squash them down because Mm. there is a lot of white fragility across the internet Mm. and a lot of white sensitivity. And I wonder what do you think we need to do to make it a safer, more inclusive space for women of colour? It's about making space for those women to raise their voices and not speaking for them. But then on in the same breath, we only make up 3% of the population. And obviously I'm talking specifically about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, I never feel right talking about any other kind of uh, woman of colour because I don't understand their experience, but I do champion them as well. So for the most part, because we're such a small population, we're not going to be in the room and we're not going to be in certain online um, spaces for the most part. So it's actually about non-Indigenous people calling it out when a discussion is happening about our culture 
and we're not there to participate. It's about recognizing that. It's also about feeling responsibility to, you know, call people out when they are being super racist or talking about things incorrectly. When people talk about being an ally and like, how do you be an ally and that sort of stuff, I think in its most simplest form, it's when you're with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you support them, you step aside to let them lead the way. And when they're not in the room, you recognize that absence, you talk about that absence and also make sure that the the other people in the room are aware of their privilege and how incorrect they can be about certain things. You're 24 yep. and this is your main game. What does your social life look like? <laughs> Do I have one? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Actually, one of my best mates said to me, I swear you fit m- more than 24 hours into a day. Mm-hmm. And it's that it's probably been my biggest struggle for most of my adult life, actually, because I've, as much as this has been the craziest year of my life, I've been growing towards it. I've done some pretty awesome things basically since leaving school. And I've always struggled with maintaining a social life and it has had, you know, quite a detrimental impact on my mental health a lot of the time. So I've I've had to really be conscious of it and I'm more aware of it because the first thing I do when I'm stressed is like block off all communication from people. <laughs> and I said to one of my friends, if you ask me to, to go and do something with you and I say no please force me to come and she the first couple after I, I told you her regret that, that. <laughs> actually the first couple of times that she did it after I told her that she didn't fight me and I was like oh man maybe I should have been harder when I told her about it because then as soon as I w- would be like no I can't come I don't feel like I'm tired and things like that I make up excuses because when I'm stressed like that I get quite anxious in social situations and I yeah I just wanted her to like drag me up by the hair if she had to and yeah most recently we were just going to the pub with some friends to watch the footy and she was like do you want to come and it was like a Friday night and I didn't want to go in my own head I'd made it up like but I told myself I didn't want to go because I needed to be fresh to do more work on a Saturday because I, I really am doing stuff seven days a week and then she was like come on Marley let's go like you got to do it. Just, it's your time. Yeah, it's your time. <laughs> and I was like, Ugh. and and I went, and I was really, really glad that I did. But I, I struggle with that quite a bit, and I have a re- really small social circle. I actually, actually, just before I launched Titters for Titters, I had to cut off a big chunk of friends, um, which is weird. And it's, I, I've spoken about this quite a bit because a part of what I attribute the success I've seen in the last twelve months to is like who you surround yourself with, and. I had a group of friends who absolutely hadn't when are not bad people at all, but were interested in going on benders every weekend, which is I've never been into, but I hung around them because I went to school with them and we had a history and whatever. And I had to go, okay, I'm not going to have some confrontation because you've, you've done nothing wrong by me really, but I'm just not going to come anymore. And after doing that to a point when, they kind of stopped inviting me. I, I f- felt quite liberated and wasn't looking, you know, wasn't getting to Monday and thinking about the weekend. Like that that used to be the group message all the time. Monday, get to work. Oh God, I can't wait till Friday. And I stopped doing that. And I was like, oh, actually, 
Seven days is a lot. You could do a lot in seven days. It's great. Sometimes Mondays are great. Like, I know I sound crazy. <laughs> Who'd have thought? <laughs> Shameless is out on Mondays. That's my favorite exactly. day of the week. <laughs> you have such a beautifully eloquent way of articulating your message and your purpose. Where does that come from? Did you have to train that side? Because every time I listen to you speak on a podcast or host a podcast, you are so naturally gifted, it seems. Is it natural or... Did you have to hone those skills? Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) I think I've always been a storyteller and storytelling is a tradition I carry with the weight of 80,000 years behind me. So they they passed it on when it was already pretty well formed for me. I think that kind of combining that with, with being a writer and constantly refining things and also, yeah, in a previous role, My title was co-CEO of an organization and I had to come up with my 60 second elevator pitch of myself and I practiced that for like three to four months constantly, like all the time. I had my boss at the time just come into the office and be like, go and I'd have to do it. And it was, I mean, there was some big problems throughout that year anyway, but that that one was probably one of the positives that came out of it um, because I realized I learned really quickly that you only have a certain amount of time in front of people and you need to be clear in your message. And I think that's probably my biggest tip when it, it comes to reflecting on titters for titters and maybe it's success and why I've been able to do things like get a podcast is because I'm able to sell the idea quickly and succinctly. Yeah, it, it has taken practice, I guess, in a short. What's the end game for you? I know... Like we keep saying, you're only 24, you've been doing this for a year and it kind of flattens what you do if I say, okay, so what point are we getting to? Yeah. But what do you want most out of what you do? Oh God, that's a hard question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've always seen that my dedication to my culture as a not like a never ending thing. I think the medium will always change and fluctuate and there's going to come a point where I'm not relevant to young women anymore and that's fine um, and I'm happy to pass the baton on when it comes to titties for titties and I'd love to be able to support someone to get to a point where they could take it off my hands. I think, I mean, everyone always says to me they think I'll end up in politics, which makes me sick. Oh, <laughs> We were both about to be like, oh, I was but allowed you're so to be like, please, Molly. <laughs> I just I'm so like anti-partisan so like go as an independent yeah it's kind of terrifying I don't know but maybe in like 30 years time you've got yeah I I think it's because of my age that I'm like oh yeah no thanks but I love how you looked at both of our faces and you're like oh no not them too (laughs) you could already read it I was like feeling my face being like but please (laughs) yeah I mean honestly I've been having people say that to me since I was about 16 and I think it's just I think it's probably because of the way I articulate things yeah and maybe I talk around in circles maybe that's what people say you don't at all yeah, it's weird. That's where a lot of people think I'll end up. I'm. I also miss studying a lot. When I submitted my honors, I had my honors supervisor saying, "Oh, so you're gonna put your PhD application into?" Which again, I was like Ugh, at the time. But I mean, I'm. That's not off the table. So you could see me as a nerdy little academic. academic. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that too. I'm imagining all these like future Marlies. <laughs> I mean, the possibilities are endless, but but I'll always be committed to um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, and I, I just 
have always had it in innate passion for the next generation. I was lucky to work with a lot of uh, teenage girls for a while and they just oh, gave me so much energy and so much hope for the future because this is the most connected we've seen across the board most connected people are in this period of time and for our community it means that there's girls linking up and building stuff of their own which is really really cool marley our final question which is the same question for every in conversation guest is what is success to you and how do you feel success and find success in your own life success is happiness Whatever it is that you're doing, if you're not happy while you're doing it, you're not successful. It doesn't matter if you're making tons of money. It doesn't matter if you do have thousands of followers on Instagram. If you're not happy and you don't feel good about what you're doing every day, it's not success. It's just kind of bumbling along trying to figure out life. I'm really lucky in the sense that my success is driven by my passion and the fact that there is nothing in this world that makes me prouder than to be able to say I'm an Aboriginal woman. And in knowing that every day of my life I'm I'm talking about my culture and I'm championing my people, that's success for me. And it doesn't matter that I'm never going to be a millionaire. <laughs> it's Don't rule it out. Oh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. But um, it's... It's a true honour and it's exciting and surprising every day and I would only wish that more women would would feel strong enough to just go out on a limb and follow your passion over everything else. I think though by doing what you're doing you're inspiring a lot of people to do that genuinely. So thank you Marley so much for your time, for sharing your stories. I think you don't have to share your experiences in the way that you do and it's incredibly generous that you do so. So thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Marley Silver. If you loved hearing what Marley had to say as much as we loved having her, you can check out more of her work on Instagram at marley.silver. That's Marley with two E's or at titters for titters. The four is numerical. Two, if you found yourself engrossed in this chat, we suggest you go back through our feed and have a listen to our interview with Flex Mummy. We will pop the link to that episode in our show notes. As for us, as always, you can follow us on Instagram. We are at Shameless Podcast. We also have a Facebook group that is Shameless Podcast Community. We will be back in your ears on Monday. Bye, guys. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
there is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.